welcome to The Coda, a music podcast and the perfect end note to your week. I'm Rob Christofferson, and with me is the hootie to my blowfish, the Fred to my durst, Brian Hasty. Brian, how's it going, man? All things considered, pretty good, Rob, though I do have to admit, uh, do you remember that Citizen King song, uh, Better Days? <laughs> from the 90s yes. Uh, yes, i've had a, a hell of a day i had the landlord call me and uh there were uh, pipe problems in the building that i live in so i had to rush home in the middle of the work day to uh, let some plumbers in so i'm a bit frantic but this podcast will help soothe my soul because we're gonna talk about some of my favorite stuff we're talking about music man and like how long have we been talking about doing this podcast that's been over a year now so let's say you and i have known each other what like a year and a half ish let's say so probably 70 yep. percent of our friendship Yes, yes, that sounds about right. I, We have always bonded over very weird things, the paranormal and such, but music is always that one thing that I think we've bonded over the hardest, just because we share Spotify links with each other, we, we talk about music in our Twitter DM chat, so music has always been there. If I were to say, if someone were to survey our Twitter DMs, like I'd say like 80% of it is just random music talk. So this is a long time coming. Yeah, it is a long time coming. And uh, uh, to give you listeners an idea of what you could expect from the podcast, uh, we'll give you a little bit of a rundown. So this is going to be a bi-weekly podcast uh, going forward at the moment. Um, and you could expect three segments uh, every episode. You'll get music news in the front and... Uh, you know, we'll be ca- recapping some of the biggest headlines that uh, have come out during the last couple of weeks. And then we will go into a main topic. This could range from, you know, an in-depth discussion to new Metal, which I know, Brian, you are just waiting for. You're waiting so on that. So many man. Google Docs. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, we could be touching on how streaming platforms have changed music. And uh, today's uh, main feature is, uh, it, it's fitting for uh, this uh, first episode for us. Um, and then we're going to end each episode with an album recommendation or a, a song recommendation, something that we've been listening to and uh, we think that you should listen to. So, that's what you could expect from the podcast, and and I think it's a great format. I think so, too. You get a little bit of everything, the old, the new, the everything in between. And also, the funny thing is, you and I have very similar tastes in a lot of ways, but we also diverge a bit more. Like, I feel you like um, like a little bit more of the folky kind of stuff, whereas I tend to go a little bit more on the, the darker, harder stuff. So I feel like we're going to bring some interesting perspectives on uh, both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we... We complement each other so well, but we also uh, bring different things to the table, which is what's going to make this podcast great. So uh, we're going to kick it off with a little bit of news here. So uh, on October 15th, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced their 2020 list of nominees. Uh, they include uh, Pat Benatar, uh, Dave Matthews Band, Depeche Mode. This is their third nomination. Uh, the Doobie Brothers, Whitney Houston, uh, Judas Priest, Kraftwerk, MC5, Motorhead, Nine Inch Nails, The Notorious B.I.G., Rufus featuring Shaka Khan, Todd Rundgren, Soundgarden, T-Rex, and Thin Lizzy. So that's a pretty prestigious list right there. Um, what do you see as the strongest nominees that you think will get in in 2020? The big thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think, is that they have such a boner for dead people, right? Yes. So I yes. do feel like uh, like Whitney, uh, Motorhead, 
uh, Thin Lizzy, Soundgarden, they all have a stronger chance of getting in the f- on the first ballot um, than perhaps someone like, uh, you know, a Kraftwerk or a Dave Matthews band. Though I do feel like Dave Matthews might be the big lock here. I am kind of conflicted on Dave Matthews band just because their reputation with the public is like, there is this almost schism of people that love them. And these are the people that buy tickets to their shows that will buy their albums, the days that they come out. And then there's like how popular culture, at least most of popular culture interprets them. And that is, is like this joke jam band that, you know, kind of fell out of favor toward the end of the nineties. And I think, in terms of musicianship on this list, you cannot find a better band. I'm going to say that right up front. I've seen Dave Matthews' band three times now. You cannot find better musicianship between a group of individuals on this list. I'd agree with that. I'm just trying to think, yeah, like I'm going through the other nominees, and I don't really see a, a strong contender in terms of musicianship um, that would be comparable to a Dave Matthews' band. So I feel like on my end, I think that might be uh, the the biggest lock, I guess. What about you? Um, yeah, I, I think that's about right. And I mean, if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wants to play it safe, there's a safe choice to get in, which, you know, given how it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they don't want to cause too much of a scene like they did a couple years ago with Steve Miller. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a shoe in. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Um, uh, near and dear to my heart, though, probably not going to get in for a very long time as Nine Inch Nails, of course, because Trent Reznor threw that whole, you know, I don't care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, tantrum. But he's recently uh, interviews like sort of like come around because he inducted The Cure. And he had such a great time um, there that he actually is rethinking his uh, anti-Hall uh, of Fame stance. Yeah, and uh, he's been nominated three times now, so maybe 2020 is the year. We'll we'll see, but um, yeah, uh, I I kind of hope that he gets in this year because he deserves a place there, especially with the way that his career has evolved, not just with Nine Inch Nails, but also with uh, his film scoring that he's been doing, which is just fantastic. In every film that I have seen uh, his work in, it's just fantastic. Also, Trent Reznor, CMA recipient as of today, right? So, uh, something yes. to think about. <laughs> <laughs> Never in a thousand years would I have imagined the, the, that sentence being said out loud. No, nobody has ever, and uh, it will go down in history. <laughs> so, let's flip th- the script on this. Um, uh, who do you, and I, I have a, uh, an idea of who's not going to get in, but who do you think won't get in? I don't think that Todd, R- Todd Rundgren will get in. Yeah, Just, I agree with that. Uh, I don't think that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame understands, like, Todd Rundgren is a is a genius. He's a certified genius in my book, and I don't think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will ever get that. And I don't think most of the music world will get that either. Um, and, and I don't mean to, you know, be that kind of shady person, but there are elements of Todd Rundgren that I don't think that people really understand and then you really need to explore his work to understand the genius that is Todd Rundgren I definitely agree with that actually the the two my two picks would have been um Todd Rundgren and uh the Notorious B.I.G. because there's this like this weird and we've discussed this actually in the DMs this like weird coded idea of of the Notorious B.I.G. uh versus um a wider audience right who are largely voters yeah yeah, which is going to most likely fall short with them. So, um, I would also add 
craft work to this list just because they've been yes. nominated so many times now. It's six times, and I just don't see them getting in. Too weird, too German for uh, that. But and, and that being said, too, right? Um, um, similar aesthetically, I'd say Depeche Mode. I'm not sure if where their chances stand at this right. point. Right, uh, they've uh, three nominations so far. I and they really should get in. They're an amazing band. They have an amazing catalog, and uh, they should be recognized for that. So, so our our next bit of news uh, in the. Uh, November 4th issue of the Los Angeles Times in an article titled Who Brought Down the Berlin Wall? It Might Have Been the Boss. Uh, writer Eric Kirschbaum explores the impact of Bruce Springsteen's July 19th, 1988 concert in East Berlin. Uh, during the Cold War, rock and roll music was banned in East Germany and seen as propaganda and dysfunctional. Uh, eventually, the ban was lifted uh, once you got further into the 80s, and it paved the way for artists like Bob Dylan, Brian Adams, and Depeche Mode to play there. Um, after jumping through some hoops, Springsteen finally took the stage, and like this concert was almost scrapped to begin with because he was at one point tied to a Nicaraguan dictator, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Like the the group that brought him there, like put posters up saying, "Oh, Bruce Springsteen supports this guy." <laughs> like, okay. perfect, yeah. Um, but he finally took the stage, and he addressed a crowd of nearly three hundred thousand people. Three hundred thousand people stormed the stage. They got as close as they could, and uh, Bruce famously said, "I'm not here for or against any government." I've come to play rock and roll for you in the hope that one day all the barriers will be torn down. And to drive home the point, he ripped into a rendition of Bob Dylan's Chimes of Freedom. It checks so out. So you you can't get more uh, inspirational, <laughs> <laughs> politically inspirational than that moment right there. Um, many historians have pointed to the influx of music and Springsteen's concert as the cause of the Berlin Wall's failure. Um, considering the way the world is today, is music as an, is it as much of an empowering force for social change as it was in, like, say, 1988 and even further back? It's a really interesting question because uh, I think in order to sort of address that, you have to take a step back, right? And sort of like look at the music landscape and how we consume music. And it's vastly different than it was uh, decades prior. We were more of a monoculture, whereas now there are way more, uh, like there's way more niche content that you can easily access. So I feel like there isn't as much of a unifying force behind a lot of the music that's put out. So while it is a force for social change, I don't believe it to be as impactful as it was uh, even a decade ago. I would tend to agree with that. I I think the last moment we saw music really do anything like it to be that force of power was probably like live eight. And, uh, that was what? 2005, 2006. Six? Yeah. yeah. 2005 or six, yeah. And I mean that, <laughs> that goes down in history because it was the last time that all the members of Pink Floyd got together and sang music together. And it was, one of this, these most amazing moments. And, and funny enough is uh, I do believe Dave Matthews played a set for that 
in New York City, and then he had to rush up to the concert that I was attending that night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was in 2005. I did. Uh, I used, you know, the internet. Uh, yes. <laughs> just to double check. Yeah, so basically he did play uh, a set in Philadelphia and then had to uh, apparently just run up and uh, take care of business in your neck of the woods. He And he rocked the house. That was a... Uh, he was supporting... Um, man... I can't even remember the album, but it was the was it one American Baby. Yes, that was, well, that was the yeah, that was the lead single off of Stand Up. Yeah, Stand Up, and that it was such a weird album because it was Dave Matthews with electronic instruments, yeah. and it's like that's the one thing you know. Dave Matthews doesn't touch much at at least at that point, but now it's become a, a little more of a staple in his band, uh, but. At the time, that was a really weird concert, man. I, I won't lie. I I attended that concert with my father. <laughs> <laughs> my father and my brother-in-law. And like the thing was, is I was a member of the warehouse, their fan club at the time. I think my sister's husband and... still is, actually. I need to double check. Yeah. Really? Wow. That's amazing. Um, but... I, uh, if you wanted any kind of ticket, like within the amphitheater itself, you had to become a member of the warehouse because it was really hard, uh, to get tickets anywhere inside the amphitheater. Um, but I remember buying two. I was like, Hey dad, let's go. And then my brother-in-law's like, Hey, I want to tag along. So I was like, fine, I'll get a lawn seat and I'll be on the lawn. <laughs> Uh, so it's funny that you bring up Live Aid and Pink Floyd because, Rob, I wanted to point to an even earlier instance because I personally do not believe that Live Aid was a unifying force the way that the following song I'm about to talk to is. Uh, uh, it is September or October 2001. Yes. There is a televised special to raise money for the victims of 9-11. And on there, uh, Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit, Johnny Resnick of the Google Dolls performed Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. And I do believe, my friend, that is the last time that music was used as a unifying How force. unified do you think the world was after that performance? Everyone stopped and clapped, literally globally. Every, even people who were in bed got up and clapped and didn't know why. And then a few years bed. later, we were uh, graced with uh, Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit's uh, version of Behind Blue Eyes, which, as we know, killed the music industry. <laughs> so uh, Limp Bizkit the savior of people and also the destruction <laughs> of society all in one place the, it's uh, yeah it, the, Limp Bizkit is Aurora Boros it's definitely eating its own tail <laughs> um, coming back to the article at hand though something uh, I find is really interesting is I feel like there's a lot of this like revisionist history that happens in terms of like um, uh, using uh, you know singular points uh, to sort of explain social movements like I feel this is very reductionist in terms of like this one concert shaped the east west berlin divide right right exactly and it's like maybe it it helped a little bit but like how much of a force can music be sure it, it can be a vehicle for social change uh although i tend to think it's they they make better social statements than cause change absolutely if anything i mean they do add something to the conversation of what's going on at the time but to be the direct cause maybe bruce springsteen is the only one but <laughs> sorry brian adams sorry brian adams the uh one canadian export that is near and dear to all our hearts uh so yeah it wasn't brian adams but perhaps it could have been Bruce Springsteen, but uh, we'll just have to uh, leave that for further speculation. 
The next article, uh, this came out in Rolling Stone just uh, a couple of days ago, but uh, this is by business uh, music business insider Tim Ingham. Uh, he's reported that Spotify, this the uh, music streaming service, has turned its second quarterly profit in the 11 years since it launched back in 2008. Yes, the second. <laughs> so let us pause for a Limp Bizkit style uh, global golf clap, firstly, I think, right? Like, that makes <laughs> yeah. sense? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, like, to think, like, and it's funny because um, we talk about this um, uh, on my other podcast a lot more uh, in terms of, like, the way that tech and the way that you can fail continually and just keep, you know, uh, the, the pumping out product, right? Like companies like like Uber and, and, and things like that um, uh, constantly show uh, a deficit in, yeah. in earnings. And then like for Spotify to come out and as you were saying, in it's 11 years show its second quarter. That is six months out of 11, right? That's one twenty second of the time they're showing a profit. Yeah, it's... <laughs> no, not even, Yeah, I guess one twenty second. yeah. So six yeah. months out of uh, that, that much time is insane. It. It's a weird thing to see, like, especially when you go through business school, because I went through business school and... Oh, hell yes. <laughs> and, like, the uh, business strategies that they talk to you about, they never talk about taking a loss until you finally make it. That has never, <laughs> ever been discussed in any economics class, any accounting class, any class that I have taken. And I have seen enough analogies uh, for... LeBron James as display as being a good example of opportunity cost. I am so sick and tired of that analogy. I've seen it in three economics textbooks by this point, but um, that seems to be a strategy for a lot of businesses these days is just keep taking the loss and you will become and try to expand globally to the point where you are too big to fail uh, ultimately. And I think, uh, Spotify at this point did a little bit of, of smart maneuvering on their point. So um, in the uh, third quarter of 2019, Spotify posted a $60.4 million, $60 million profit, which put them in the black for the year. This is the first time they've ever been in the black for the year. Uh, so far, earning them a profit of $4.5 million. Peanuts. Yeah, peanuts. Uh, I'm sure Apple just balks at that number. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, like, they're also trending downwards a bit, but let's not get into that depressing state of affairs. Right. Um, so, I mean, there are several reasons why it seems like Spotify is managed, and they weren't even projecting this large of a profit, so they, I guess they were also uh, very pleasantly surprised themselves. Is that a good thing to be pleasantly surprised by the profit that you have? <laughs> I think, yeah, like, not sucking is, like, a great thing, right? So let's just keep yeah. not sucking, guys. Right. It almost <laughs> seems like... So, like, they were initially saying, well, we could have either a $5 million profit or a $73 million loss. I like how that's such a yo-yo number. It's like, <laughs> I could be, you know, I can make 10 bucks or I can make a million dollars. Yeah. Like, uh, we're, we're, like there's got to be a smaller gap there. There's got to be a smaller <laughs> I gap. I want to meet their analysts. I really would love to have that conversation with them. Like, how did you come up with this number? Explain this to me. Yeah, could somebody put us in touch with Spotify's accounting department? Yeah, I we think this love... is a great time to list off our socials, right? Yeah. <laughs> While we're here, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, uh, you can find us. Uh, we are the Codacast at gmail.com if you so choose to send us an email. Uh, what are we on every other one? <laughs> I do believe we are the Coda Podcast in one word on... Yes. Uh, 
on Twitter. Sorry, wow, this is uh, I have to rethink. I have to retrain my brain after having said my uh, my other shows social so much. So we're at the Coda Podcast on Twitter, and also I do believe the same thing on Instagram. Though don't hold that against me. If we are wrong, we'll post all of the stuff in the show links, and that we could follow us. Yes, we'll make it easier for you than we are um, audibly right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, that all that being said, uh, um, uh, Spotify analysts hit us up. Hit us up. Like, slide into those DMs with your greasy money. (laughs) Yeah, smoothly slide in with your... Yeah, exactly. Just, like, I want to know. Just tell me, explain to me the magic. Because I want to go to my boss and be like, by the way, I could maybe finish this project or my computer might burn. Right. Um, I want that confidence. (laughs) Yes, we we do want that confidence. Uh, So... They have chalked this up to a number of factors, which include uh, increased Spotify premium memberships and ad revenue, uh, decreased royalty payments to record labels, decreased spending on marketing, R&D, and employee salaries. So do you think that Spotify is now in a place where it could become regularly profitable? So the thing there is that they have to maintain those memberships, right? If they can keep their user base, they'll be fine for a long time, right? And as well as um, we were talking about this earlier today uh, via the internet, but um, part of the reason why there are decreased royalty payments is that Spotify has made deals with certain record labels in order to um, have rolling agreements, um, which I do believe it just equalizes out the payments they must make. So I guess they're bringing the cost of those payments down just across the board. Yeah. Yeah. And like... Uh, when you talk about a rolling agreement, it's almost like a in an informal agreement that uh, lasts as long as one or the other wants it to. So, yeah, pretty much. And and those two uh, labels are Universal Music and Warner Brothers. Uh, not sp- not small potatoes. No, not small potatoes. And uh, Spotify actually reduced its uh, royalty payments by about six uh, percent. Uh, in the last quarter, um, and it, it does represent the largest amount of their expenditures, which for any business, that's really high, 74%. So, yeah, it, it should be interesting to see where Spotify got... Ugh, it should be interesting to see where Spotify got... Wow, I can't even <laughs> fucking talk. It should be interesting to see where Spotify goes from here, and if they can maintain those... Uh, that membership basis because that seems to be the bread and butter and uh now they also seem to be getting back a little bit unlike a, from, a title who knows what's happening to them right uh has anybody written a eulogy for them uh get at us. title analysts the the coda <laughs> podcast one word on twitter slide into our dms please please <laughs> like uh, even if your knees are worn from all the begging and pleading i imagine you have to do with the public we will loan you some knee pads just you know, absolutely yeah uh is that twenty dollars worth it is that twenty dollars worth it i want anybody to hit us up on social media that does subscribe yeah, those to three title. people is that yeah is that twenty dollars worth it? my educated guess is no but uh, that's just between you me and anyone who dares listen to this yes <laughs> uh so our final bit of news for the week uh initially came from the wall street journal back in mid-october Uh, The Journal reported that the Black Crows had signed a deal with Live Nation to do a reunion tour in the following weeks. 
billboards started to pop up in Milwaukee and a few other cities. I believe one of them was Atlanta, just because they're from Georgia. And uh, on Monday of this week, uh, it was finally revealed that the Black Crows, uh, which at this point is just uh, Chris and Rich Robinson and a backing band. It's not the full band. Um, are doing a 50 or a 46 date run starting in June for the 30th anniversary of the Black Crows debut album, Shake Your Money Maker. Tickets went on sale immediately after the official statement on Monday. So your boy here managed to lap up three tickets. He's going. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, have you upgraded uh, from lawn seats into somewhere into an amphitheater this time around? Oh, least? oh, my friend, I am down in section six. Oh, hell I, yeah. I am, I am not playing around. <laughs> uh, so, my big question to you is: Do you think it's going to uh, this reunion will last until they make it to your stop? If it does not, I will be knocking on Chris Robinson's door. I swear to God, <laughs> <laughs> you you better deliver. I like the idea of your vendetta against a man who uh, doesn't know about you just yet. Give it time. We're new. So you you were you're you're obviously a fan of the band, right? Yes, yeah, so I've been a fan of the band for about a decade now. Okay, so uh, one tenth, or sorry, one third of the time of uh, Shake Your Money Maker's uh, uh, life, pretty much. Yeah, and Shake Your Money Maker being thirty years old makes me feel old. I was in pre first when that album came out. Wow. Okay. Yep. Uh, but um, later that Monday. Uh, the 11th, uh, Steve Gorman, their former drummer, uh, appeared on the State of Amorica podcast and claimed that the, and criticized the band for basically creating a tour around a single album. He compared it to seeing a band like Foreigner today with only a few remaining members play through the hits. Uh, in September, Gorman published a memoir about the band called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. And in it... Uh, he presents an honest portrayal of the triumphs and the struggles, and mostly the struggles, because uh, a lot. Basically, Chris and Rich Robinson never got along. So, and this includes uh, their breakup in 2015 during the 25th anniversary of the Shake Your Money Maker album. So, my question to you is. <laughs> Do you see this tour as a big F you to Steve Gorman for writing the book? The weirdest thing is the timing in all this, right? So the book comes yes. out and then like, what, like four weeks later, this gets announced five weeks later, let's say. Yeah. A little, a little on the nose here. And I know that these kinds of deals take time, but clearly um, there's like a weird kind of synchronicity happening here. And I, you know, is it really synchronicity? I'm not sure now that I'm saying it out loud. Yeah. Like. Also, his analogy I... about Foreigner doesn't really work, right? Because, like, if you go ahead and open up the liner notes to Shake Your Money Maker, all the tracks are written by the Robinsons. You, you've got a, you got a point there. I, that is very true. Um, I, I, it's just, I understand where Gorman's coming from just because of how the band ended and how tumultuous its actual end was. I mean, they went on a hiatus for a couple of years before coming back together and being uh, and touring for the Shake Your Money Maker anniversary. So I can kind of see it, but yeah, I tend to agree. They were the ones that wrote the songs. So. I also think he's angry that he's not earning off of this one. Like, let's do, you know, that's literally how it reads. Yeah, a little bit. If anything, like I said, uh, I'm about halfway through Hard to Handle, and it's actually really, really, really good. And half the book, 
you spend around Shake Your Money Maker. It was obviously that pivotal a record, even though I don't think it's their best record, but it is uh, a damn good record regardless. But, um, yeah, it, he he's trying to play it off like he's not bitter, and, like, he kind of takes stabs at the fans by, you know, by saying, well, this tour is sad, you know, you're you're engineering a tour based around an album, so you're basically getting up there and playing uh, an entire album in its entirety, but, like, Pink, members of Pink Floyd have done that, and it's been great, so why is this any different? I think this is an agreement between a concert-goer and an act, right? If you know exactly what you're getting into, then it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 100%. You know, like, your Pink Floyd analogy is a great one. And, like, he was saying, like, here, like, you know, like, Foreigner. Like, if people understand there's only one remaining, you know, uh, prominent member of Foreigner and you're still paying to go see them, that's fine. People want to hear the hits. They don't necessarily care who's playing them, right? And I think that, like, Gorman feels um, a sort of sense of uh, entitlement to the work that he's uh, put out. And that's that's fine. But at the same time, like, there's a larger kind of, like, uh, movement happening here. Yeah. 100%. And, uh it, it, that interview is definitely weird that he gave because it's like it, it's kind of polarizing the statements that he gives because he's yeah he's basically saying well this is sad to to make a tour like this but uh, go see it you're fine go see it and like okay whatever dude whatever I think a, a, a better argument would have been made using uh, Guns N' Roses for example right like when Axel um had toured you know and he was the only prominent member left over I guess like him. And yeah, like that—that's about it, right? Uh, yeah. I'm until the not until your lifetime tour, uh, more recently. But like, yeah, I think there's a strong argument to be made. Whereas you're criticizing the principal and only uh, songwriters of a seminal album that they feel like they 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 own it. They they're allowed to play this. Yeah. And yeah, also the are. thing is, like, if he's getting points off the album, what is he getting complaining about? I don't understand. Like, there's going to be a renewed interest in. Uh, the album in general, right? So if he's getting any points off of that, then he stands to benefit. 100%. I mean, you're talking about a band who kind of polarized its audience a little bit by not going with the flow, essentially, and doing their own thing, which, you know, reinforces your fan base for sure, but you're definitely left with a smaller fan base at the end of the day. Because if you look at um, the time when the Black Crows, the time period the Black Crows show up, which is, you know, 1990 and onward, they're not doing what the grunge bands are doing. And, like, that's a loose term in itself because you can't really consider all the bands that get lumped into that grunge, especially when you look at the scene from Seattle and realize how different those bands are from Nirvana or... Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, or uh, Stone like, Temple, or Alice in Chains, right? Like, and that's the, yeah. another big one is they're they're pure hard rock slash you know light heavy metal, and yet they get lumped into the the grunge moniker, right? And whereas the Black Crows were playing just straight up rock and roll, yeah, which I, you know, which was rare, you know, for that for that time period. I'd also say like, yeah, not just rock, but like blues rock and Southern rock, like a very, yeah. very kind of uh, niche kind of, uh, of, of genre to, to be playing at that time. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing that they were able to sustain it for as long as they did, because they basically, I don't want to say they did the same thing, but like their sound didn't change all that much. Yeah. I agree until with that. you, until you get to, uh, I want to say, um, 
like war paint. war paint. Yeah. 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 Where you get more of an Americana sound. Yeah. I agree with that actually. So that's going to do it for the news section. And, uh, I guess we'll we're stay gonna, tuned gonna, and uh, see how yeah. the progression of the of the the Black Crows um, sort of like because there's a couple of months before this tour starts, right? So it's anyone's guess what happens. Yep. Uh, yeah, and uh, and hopefully you know what happens. I did not. I spent almost five hundred dollars on these damn tickets. Did you buy the ticket insurance? Was that an, an option to you? I did buy the Hell ticket yeah. insurance because I yeah I wasn't <laughs> walking away from that. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's going to do it uh, for the news section. And uh, we're going to head right on over to the main top. Um, So, for our first main topic, uh, we thought it was fitting to talk about uh, the opening track. Song one, uh, on any album, is a mission statement. It serves as an introduction to the album you're about to hear, and it sets the tone for the remainder of your listening experience. And... Can you remember the times that you heard like smells like teen spirit or straight out of Compton or London calling for the very first time? And I mean, have your parents ever told you about maybe the time that they heard Boston's more than a feeling or Led Zeppelin's immigrant song? A lot of these were singles, but again, these are gateway songs in, in many ways. We kind of, touched on the purposes uh, a little bit of the opening track here but uh what are some of the other things that opening tracks can do i think they give you a great idea of what you're about to listen to right like there's not a lot of albums out there where the uh first track not like and i'm barring any sort of like intro tracks you know first proper songs uh don't veer wildly off course right for the majority of albums out there so i think like you get a good idea of uh, of what's going on there i do like the the notion of the mission statement i think it's a really good one i uh i think it's a very strong thing more often than than not your first song has to be the catchiest song in order to keep you there, in order to put your butt in the seat to begin with. So, another thing that I think these songs do, um, and especially with artists that go through a, a changing set of styles, is it introduces a new style uh, to their audience. And I think the most famous example of that was probably Radiohead, uh, opening track to Kid A. It just it kind of changed the game for them. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit. A little bit. And and I think that a lot of bands have done that. Coldplay has done that. Um, probably not the best example because they seem to change their style uh, a lot, at least in the last like decade, decade and a half. Diminishing returns. Yeah, there are diminishing returns. A, a little bit. Um, but I want to get into... like some of the best of all time like when you think of opening track what song what songs stick out uh my first one i think uh, that i would like to go with is uh, keeping with the new metal motif is corn's blind from uh, their self-titled album right uh mm. you know jonathan davis screaming are you ready to start things off and really like it is like patient zero of the the new metal movement like before that there were a lot of different influences but this kind of like sort of uh, took everything together and, and stuck it into a blender, and then you, you you pour it out, and you get you get some heartache, you get some sadness, you get some John Davis. <laughs> and you can't go wrong with all of that in no. one song. It's a great. It's one of the greatest combinations uh, that you can put in your ear holes. 
I uh, yes, I agree with that. Uh, though being a corn fan in 2019 as an adult is very confusing. It's a very confusing time because, like, I, I think corn has this reputation that you're supposed to grow out of it when you're past your teens. Like, it, at least that's the reputation that I've always seen them have is that they're these this band for your adolescence for your youth, but you're supposed to leave it behind like after the age of 18. Well, good and bad news is they're still uh, kicking uh, both uh, in, uh, you know, my headphones as well as uh, publicly. Like they put out an album a couple of months ago called the nothing, which actually wasn't half bad for a band that's 12 or 13 albums into their career. Yeah. Uh, it was halfway decent. I did listen to it. Um, definitely not one of the worst things I listened to in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what about you like what is a uh, an intro or an opening track that like you want to to highlight i think one that a lot of people have probably forgotten about over the years and i don't want to say this is like underrated because we'll get into the underrated stuff but um cult of personality by living color like when you heard that song it kicked you in the chest and it was something that you have never heard before. And you probably haven't heard since just because of the style of that band. You talk about a band with amazing musicianship, but like Vernon Reed, his style is very different. It's very punkish in a way. It's very hard rock in a way. And uh, it comes together in this band in a really unique style. But like those opening riffs, like, you hear that you're either like thinking of uh wrestler CM Punk, you know, because like he pretty much put that song back on the map like half a decade ago. And maybe you think of MTV and seeing that because they played that music video all the time. I remember uh being a kid, seeing that music video all the time on MTV and just how amazing that song is uh, because it's a very political song. Yes. <laughs> very political. And uh, it references figures that you wouldn't necessarily reference together in a song or like in anything together as like, uh, you know, Mussolini, Gandhi, JFK, like all of these people. And like you put them into this melting pot of cult of personality and it... <laughs> It turns into an amazing song. Yeah, the song fucking rips. It does rip. It, it it still rips. And every time I listen to it, and I listen to it at least once or twice a month, it just... Whew. The worst thing I ever did was try to do this karaoke man, and I failed miserably. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, there uh, is there evidence of this? Yes, there is. And uh, maybe uh, one day uh, I will post it to our social media deal uh, that sounds yeah I, i'm always down for that i mean i have super embarrassing stuff that i could probably post too so we could go for one for one for a while <laughs> just really just des destroying our images uh you know one post at a time yeah yeah um i'm down man you're going down perfect you're going down <laughs> uh my next one is uh not the one that i want to talk about a lot because it's been talked about a lot but uh um harkening back to an earlier conversation we had this episode welcome to the jungle guns and roses oh man that that's another one that really kicked you in the chest when you heard it. Yeah, and it, it is perfect, as you were saying before, as a mission statement. You hear it, and you know exactly what you're getting into. 
Yeah, you're getting into an ass beating. Yeah, yeah, literally, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on it because a lot of ink has been spent on that song. But just something that I wanted to highlight, absolutely something that I listened to when I was like, you know, in my teens, you know, and it revved me up. It did. And I think I heard it for the first time when I was like 18 years old. And I had heard of Guns N' Roses. Like, my sister... Uh, back in the MTV days, watched, and I do remember November Rain, and I'm like, why is this music video so long? <laughs> what's wrong with 11 music, minute music videos, dude? What's what's wrong with that? Uh, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not, uh, as, as much as it pains me to say this, and I don't really want to talk about this individual all that much, I was not a fan of the Thriller music video, and I know that's sacrilegious oh, whatever, to it's many fine. people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. What is a music podcast but uh, a series of hot takes? Uh, so many hot takes. <laughs> so what's next on the list for you? One that is similarly aggressive, like maybe even more aggressive, is... Uh, our Arsenal by At the Drive-In. Just, oh, that's a great choice. Yeah, that that song, again, it's one of those rip-roaring ones, but it it has, like, the sonic texture of, like, someone who's, like, running away from something. They're just, like, trying to run as fast as they can, and, like, uh, the way that uh, Cedric Bixler-Zavala is just, like, singing on that, like, that's the first real hints of what he would become in the Mars Volta and just the way that song is done and like how fast it rips. It's, it's amazing. And just, and then like two songs later, uh, you got one arm scissor. And then a couple songs later after that, you got the, the quiet lull of invalid literature department. Like there's so, so much good stuff on relationship of command that at the drive-in. And I think this has been said and, uh, funnily enough, like we talked about revisionist history. I feel like a lot of that's happening and has happened in the last like five to 10 years uh, about this group in particular. Yeah, to the point where I kind of wish they didn't release that last album. But let's not talk about that. Yeah, let's let's not. Did you give the? I think it's it's anti mask, right? So it's like half yeah. Mars Volta and Flea. Like, did you give that album a listen? I did, I did, and uh, it was okay. I mean, like, <sighs> it was very very stripped down, which I kind of enjoyed. But uh, it's not something that I'll necessarily return to. But in terms of like the, its roots, I feel is like the closest project that Mars Volta members have been involved in um, that also harken back to at the driving. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree, and yeah, I, I tend to agree that it is also it's okay. It's it's nothing spectacular, but uh, if you're like a purist or a completist, go back and listen to that. It's it's actually halfway decent. Uh, so so what's next for you, Brian? Uh, something interesting, uh, different draw that we haven't tackled yet, but um, Meek Mill's Dreams and Nightmares. So oh uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, the beat flip at 136 so you kind of get this like slow kind of like um, um, piano-ish kind of uh, uh, lull to start things off and then at 136 the beat kicks in and uh, Meek Mill just goes nuts for in, in, like the next two minutes almost <laughs> yes that is an incredible opening track I man I haven't listened to that one in a while man. do me a favor yeah. get into your vehicle afterwards put that on and uh, promise me you won't speed because it is impossible I've realized <laughs> I'm not even afraid to admit that. It's, yeah, it's bad. It it is it is incredibly bad. Uh, I remember uh, being in cars with friends, and um, uh, "Show Me How to Live" by Audio Slave would come on, and it's just like, okay, you're getting a little fast. You're getting yeah. a little fast. Slow it down. <laughs> Slow it down. Like I know it's the floor on the floor, but stop it. <laughs> yeah, but it, I think we should have a whole uh, episode dedicated to like car songs. We should. We we definitely should. The the four on the floors they deserve 
the love and affection that you give to your gas pedal. I mean, yeah. mail us your speeding tickets. We won't pay them, obviously, but like mail them to us. We'll we'll throw them on our social media. We'll take pictures, we throw them on our social media. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, bonus points if you get the cop to write down the name of the song on the ticket. Yeah, that that would be fantastic. Please do that. <laughs> so what's next for you? Uh one that um in in the states nobody talks about just because of this band's popularity inside the United States is it's it's tumultuous but it's found its love in the border states and and even in the in the south and um Grace 2 by the Tragically Hitman that song is one of the weirdest opening tracks I have ever heard it's a rip roaring one it rocks it's not a heavy rocker but it rocks hard enough that you want to, you know, like, I don't know, move awkwardly to it. Not dance. You can't <laughs> dance to Grace 2. Just, just because, like a, a weird two-step? Yeah, a very weird two-step. But it's it's such a weird song about a guy trying to solicit a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, we've often joked you and I that you are an honorary Canadian, and this is just yet another way of proving it. It pains me that more people don't love the tragically hip in the states and it's so weird that their only live album is from the united states a show in the united states like i mean aside from the vault stuff like their only official live release is from a show in what ohio <laughs> right and there's also the dvd only release of that one night in toronto yes yes so but i mean that doesn't really count that's not a live uh, record right Right, uh, you can't. But yeah, it is. It's from the states. Yeah. yeah, you can't put it on the platter. But like, you can put. Yeah, you could try. You could put live between us on the platter, and <laughs> that that is a rip roaring live album. And Grace Two is a song featured on that. And a lot of the songs from Day for Night, which that album comes from, are so very weird. Even in uh, the discography for. The tragically hip at the time like those songs are dark as hell for the most part yeah i agree with that actually uh, uh it's a great choice it, it and like you could you could probably pick a, a bunch of other i mean uh road apples has little bones which is a, a yeah. straight up uh rock and roll song that's fantastic you have um what was the lead off of Fully Completely? Was it Courage? Oh, uh, Courage. Yeah. Courage, yeah, for Hugh McClellan. Yeah, Courage Courage is a, a another fantastic song. But this one is just so... It, it balances that line between Rip Rocker and So Weird that you have to love it and you will dance awkwardly to it. That's just <laughs> how it is. <laughs> On my end, if there were a gun to my head and I had to pick an opener, I think I would go with Troubled in Houses gift shop. That yes, that is an absolute. As like a slow build up, kind of nice, yes. but like not as odd or like a, it doesn't take you as much. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, the The ride is you're, you're along for the ride, which makes make which yes. makes sense for the lyrics. I mean, <laughs> the next one I would like to pick is Van Halen's "Running with the Devil." Oh man, oh man. Like you put that record on, and you're like, "Yep, this is it for me, guys." Like I'll see you in thirty minutes. Yep. Don't don't talk to me. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, so if I may quickly tack that on, um, a band that took Van Halen out on tour uh, in the late 70s, I wanted to pick Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath from Black Sabbath. A, a, a great and fantastic choice. Like, 
the rain, <laughs> the thunder, and then like that one chord, the devil's triad hits you, and you're like, yep, all right, well, I guess we're getting evil now. Uh, exactly, and I mean, even if you uh, curtail and go to the next album, uh, Paranoid? Yeah, Paranoid, War Pigs, like, yes. that... Because you know, like, the air raid sirens, like, there, and it's, it's, it's stuff's going down. I it's, actually it's had stuff. a very difficult time picking between the two, but I went with the first one because I have this stupid, funny rule that I've been joking with friends for years. If you're a group, your first album should be self-titled, and you should have a mission statement song with your name on it. Exactly. And, and this I is hope, literally it. Yeah, and I hope we're giving advice to young bands out there. Just do it. Listen, Bo Diddley did it. Black Sabbath did it. It's good enough for you guys. Yeah, you can do it. So I, I encourage you, whatever your band name is, even if you want to name it after one of your band members, absolutely perfectly fine. What's yeah, up, go for Mitch, it. or whatever, you know, like... Yeah, I yeah. Listen to that. That. Mitch sounds like a burner of a song. <laughs> uh, what's next on your list? Um, So I'm going gonna to go a little country on you. Okay. Which, uh, you know, country songs don't generally have great opening tracks. I mean, Garth is probably the only artist that really put a lot of, I think, thought into the way that he tracked his albums. Otherwise, every other country album feels like just a collection of songs. With, um, and, and this totally doesn't totally fit into the realm of country music, but Steve Earle's Copperhead Road, man, just that. Oh, good choice. Yeah. And the way that it just builds up and builds up and the instrumentation on that, um, because it starts, what the heck are they playing at the beginning of that? I don't know. It's a good question. I've, I've never given it much thought, but now that you say that, I hear it in my head and I go, what, what is that? Right. Like, is it a squeeze box? Is it, um, like, I I don't even know, but it's like, it's almost this, like, she, sea shanty call out, because it sounds very nautical in a way, and then you, it kicks in with the um, mandolin, and you got that kick drum, and it just keeps building and building and building until uh, you're through this generational tale about a family that just gets caught up in the wrong stuff, and can't stop doing that yeah i uh what a song what a song yeah like john lee pettimore's don't name your kids that because you <laughs> they're between between running moonshine and uh growing pot down on copperhead road just don't do it i feel like ostensibly we are a music podcast but really we're just we, we are dispensing life advice yeah we are this is a um a self-help podcast, and uh, <laughs> we're bringing that into 2019, the end of 2019, into 2020. Uh, we will help you with your problems. I uh, love that idea. Yeah, hit us up, you know? Like, let's do this. Yeah. Uh, uh, very quickly, I want to do two more before getting to my final one. So Metallica's Battery off of Master of Puppets, I think, is uh, the definitive mission statement of the band. Eight minutes long, uh, exemplary song, production-wise, songwriter-wise, everything is there. And then I also want to talk about the Foo Fighters' All My Life from One by One. Uh, it kind of set the template for the next Foo projects in terms of like sequencing, right? Because after that, you had In Your Honor, which was a bit of a rocker, and then The Pretender, which is a bit of a rocker. So I feel like Dave Grohl kind of like set the pace there. Oh, Definitely. 
definitely and like he kind of perfected the loud quiet kind of dynamic that the nirvana and aol were ripping off from the pixies um you know 20 years prior right so yeah yep ah so uh looking at my list here and the couple that i have left uh, at least for this section um whenever anybody talks about rem they will always talk about Radio Free Europe. That's like the one song that everybody remembers from the 80s. And a lot of people look at R- that as REM's like defining mission statement. Like we are here, we're playing our own form of, and I hate that they call it college rock. What does that even mean? Because that's what they call Yeah, that's what they called it for so long, just because, you know, college radio stations played it all the time, and, like, it didn't seem to have a home on uh, adult contemporary radio or classic rock radio or... Which is kind of uh, ironic now. Yeah, exactly, because, I mean, it's all over. And even today, like, my local classic rock station does not play R.E.M. No R.E.M. Really? At all. Yeah. Which is very strange, especially when you get into the later 80s and, and like, Losing My Religion and, and songs like that. But I never looked at Radio Free Europe as the song that, uh, the defining mission statement, at least from the era of R.E.M. that I know them from. The one that I have chosen is What's the Frequency Canon? Ooh, Perfect. You're getting R.E.M. transitioning into this band that is almost trying to make itself ready for arena tours. Yeah, I was going to say commercially viable R.E.M. Yeah, but like the hook is so damn good and the lyrics are so damn weird because like there's this like kind of folklore around it that it has to do with this Dan Rather broadcast where this apparently crazy guy ran up uh, on a live broadcast that he was doing and yelled out, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Like, that's where that song is. That's where that legend comes from. And it just rips into this really catchy hook. And, like, the guitar part uh, that... uh, uh peter buck is playing holy god man that is an amazing lick just an amazing lick and and it's not something that uh coming from a band that put out automatic for the people before that this really dark and brooding album you didn't expect it and i mean monster's not really uh the the follow-up monster which what's the frequency kenneth uh it, it comes from is not regarded as one of their best albums no, but, but but yeah, exactly. But you have this one song that I think just it, it defines something for me. It it defined uh it, it, this new this new sound and this new way that REM was just bringing something different to the table now and it wasn't even this song and this album that really fully connected with me. It was actually New Adventures in Hi-Fi, the album after this, that was the one that turned me on to them, which is really weird. Because it's not one of the R.E.M. albums that people look fondly back on, and yet most critics will hail it as the best R.E.M. 
Right, which I think is kind of weird. I, I mean, like their their catalog is very interesting. There are a lot of of really interesting sort of um, albums, some hits, some misses. Uh, now that we've gone through like the big ones, let's let's talk about some of the ones that need more light, some of the underrated ones that people maybe don't talk about as much. And I mean, like the opening track itself, especially in this age, people don't like talk about albums as much anymore, unless you're like a critic or like music junkies like we are. So what are some underrated uh, openers that you you think deserve more light on them? So for, for me, the first one is uh, by a hardcore band named Hatebreed. They have a song called Broken from their 2002 album Perseverance. And basically, it's a minute and a half of the singer saying, uh, you want to see me fail, you'll never get your chance. So I feel like it's literally like the embodiment of like positive mental attitude, PMA, uh, in like a 90-second burst of music that's just, it catches you. Um, I remember being a teen and listening to this and being like, yeah, you know what? You're not going to watch me fail. And I feel like um, um, that whole genre of music, I feel like this properly encapsulates uh, that kind of like tough guy, hardcore mentality. Yeah, well, definitely like an anthem among anthems. Yes. Great. Yeah, it's a great way of putting that. <laughs> for sure. For sure. What you got? Uh, uh, the, the first one that I want to highlight is um, My Chemical Romance's The End. Oh, not a not a song that people talk about, not a song that when you're going through your nostalgia moments with My Chemical Romance and you look back and you think of, oh, the end. Yeah, that was just that was a great song. It's a very short, like what, like two minutes? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Two yeah. Seconds, I think. But like. Talk about a mission statement. You, you're talking about a band that before this was emo to the core. And, like, don't get me wrong. Uh, Welcome to the Black Parade is emo to, to the core. It, there's no doubt about it. Just given its song content. But the music is something else. Because... What you get on the end is brief flashes of Queen and Pink Floyd. Like, in many ways, the end is um, My Chemical Romance's version of In the Flesh. Oh, okay. That's, that's really what it sounds like. And, it, and it, it's this warm, kind of welcoming, inviting song that you're probably not going to be happy during the the next uh i mean 40 40 to 50 minutes but you know what you're right. welcome here and come <laughs> on in and hang out and that's the way that the end has always made me feel and it's that's one of the reasons why i love that song so much the weird thing too and the funny thing about that is that you um uh it's not necessarily just like one of those prelude tracks but it has the length of it yeah Exactly. Um, but I think I look at it with so much nostalgia because it was one of the few albums uh, that I listened to that my dad actually liked. Okay. Which was, very, which was very strange to me because, like, my dad before this was adult contemporary radio to the max because he was uh, a DJ for 20 years. Uh, with a radio station, tw uh, 1240 WNBZ, they played 
adult contemporary from the 70s, 80s, 90s. They kind of branched out a little bit uh, when, like, pop music uh, started to get a little more alternative uh, in the in the mid-90s. But for the most part, you know, we listened to Journey. We listened to... Uh, we did listen to Madonna a little bit back in the day. I remember uh, the Immaculate Collection. We did have that in the car. Um, basically, a lot of the music that you'd play it safe to. Right. And, and uh, uh, Moody Blues. Like, not the, like, original, like, the 60s, 70s Moody Blues. Not the, the But, like, the late versions. 80s. Right. <laughs> yeah. The the I know you're out there somewhere era of the Moody Blues and I mean that it, it was one of my dad's favorite bands so like in the mid two thousands he started to branch out a little bit and one of the bands that he really liked was My Chemical Romance and uh, he had that CD in his car and he played it all the time great yes yes so uh, next choice. Uh, it's a twofer for me. So firstly, I'm going to talk about the Deftones Diamond Eyes from their 2010 release, Diamond Eyes. A band mm-hmm. six albums into the career shouldn't be releasing a, uh, uh, not let alone a, a great track, but a great album like that. Uh, incredible. Uh, filled with dynamic hooks. Uh, singer Tina Moreno knows how to sing. It's great. Fantastic. And then also something that you and I talked about um, uh, prior to this is uh 2004's Miss Machine, or 2002, I can never remember, but uh, Dylan Driscoll plans Panasonic Youth, which to the mm-hmm. untrained ear sounds like uh, noise, but once you really sit down and work at it, you kind of get rewarded. Yeah, you, it it invites uh, repeat listening, like, and it inv- it's a song that invites you to put on a pair of headphones and get lost in it for a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's fantastic. And then um, finally, uh, on my end, I... Uh, Though the album sold quite well, I feel like this doesn't get enough props. I want to talk about Kanye West's Dark Fantasy, the first track from My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which mm-hmm. literally acts as a trailer for the album in a song. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. Yeah. And I would argue that, and this is going to piss people off, the last great Kanye West album. Uh, the last great project, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, it's very cinematic in scope, and it really brings you into the album and then like that album itself is very cinematic in its own ways like especially when you talk about tracks like all of the lights and it's like blah like cinematic in your face and a lot of that album has that kind of big production which is great but like Kanye West can harness it and make it you know feel small and relatable which he is also like also great walks you along the narrative which I think is great and yeah and I think like uh, before that, you know, like 808 and Heartbreak, uh, it, it you kind of just wallowed with Kanye for a little while, but like, I remember hearing All Falls Down and just feeling like I, that this is amazing, I need to be, I need to listen to it, I need to be a part of it. And then uh, post that and the the genius just kind of it doesn't run out it's just becomes more ego driven absolutely um so what do you have on your list um so the the last uh few that i will mention last couple um and it, and it's one that i told you i i believe is the greatest opening track of the last 20 years and it's um jason isbel's cover me up that's a great one 
it it's one of those songs that came at a time when people didn't know really who Jason Isbell was. He had released two previous uh, albums before that, uh, Sirens of the Ditch, and I think the second one was a self-titled release. Um, he, he, he had good songs on it, but nobody was paying attention to what Jason Isbell was doing just because like he was this kind of he wasn't even an americana songwriter yet he was a singer songwriter used to be in this band called the drive-by truckers who i will mention in in a minute but um he was kind of directionless and then 2013 rolls around and he releases this album called southeastern and Many praise it as one of the best albums of the decade. I would tend to agree with it. I think it's... I don't think a lot of people had heard anything like it to that point. And that's not to say that what he was doing was necessarily 100% original, but nobody had heard it in a long time. And I remember buying a CD copy of it, and I'm like, this was at a time when, you know, physical media was big for me. And I bought it, brought it home, put it in the CD player, and I could not move. I just couldn't. It is this stark, minimal track. There's only his guitar and what, like a steel guitar on that? There, There isn't a lot of instrumentation. It's mostly him and his vocals and the story that he's telling you is just this it's it's such a strange love story in a way because it's like i love you to this point we're gonna lock ourselves away in a cabin and we're not coming out unless you know uh, only for a couple circumstances yeah and that's what you get and it's just this moment where you stop and you listen, you can't do anything else. And every time I hear that song, I do not, I just stop what I'm doing and I listen. And I don't think I've ever had a song affect me in that way before or since. So for me, that's why I say it's one of the best opening tracks of the last 20 years. And, and, I, and I would, I would all, dare say one of the best songs of the last 20 years. All the elements are there for it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one, and, and we've already uh, mentioned uh, this band, the Black Crows. Twice as hard doesn't get the recognition that it deserves for being just a straight out banger opener to an album. Just brings it hard from the beginning. It's got that little slow guitar part at the beginning, and then bam, it just you know, kicks you in the chest. And not only that, you get Chris Robinson's vocals, which are so unique. Even today, there aren't a lot of guys that sing like him. And looking at the guy, you wouldn't think that he'd sing like that either. And it's just one of those songs that, and Shake Your Moneymaker is an album I listen to probably five times a month. Wow. Okay. It's one of my favorite albums of all time, and again, it's not—it's <clears throat> not the Black Crow's best album. Uh, their best album is probably uh, 
Southern Harmony and Musical Companion because they basically saw what they did on Shake Your Money Maker and did it better. Like, there's no other way to put it, but that song, it's derivative in its lyrical content, but it does not matter because it just kicks you in the chest and it encourages you in. And for about five or so songs, it keeps kicking you in the chest until you get She Talks to Angels and you're like, wow, I didn't expect that either. So, yeah, that that's one song that I always come back to. And when I make a playlist, uh, just a random playlist, half the time that's the opening track because there is no really other opening track right. that I can think of to put there because Absolutely. it puts your butt in the seat. Yeah. Um, uh, and I would say... Uh, the last one that I have uh, on this list that I want to highlight, um, and it's from an artist that you know people love anyway, but I don't think it gets the recognition that it deserves for um, just like what it brought to the table, and uh, um, that's um, Beyonce's "If I Were a Boy." Bold like, choice. That song, you kind of expected more of a banger from Beyonce. Something that, you know, high production value, maybe, you know, just something really hooky to bring you in. And she does this song about basically flipping the script on basically guys. The patriarchy. Yeah, and, like, pointing out all the crap that they do and get away with. And it's a brilliant move. And every time I, I think about that, I that to me is one of the best things Beyonce has ever done. Ever done, hands down. And uh, I think it should be commended for what it is and how bold it is to put that song at the beginning of any album. I definitely agree with that. It is, uh, as uh, returning mm-hmm. to what you're saying once again, it it is a mission statement. It is a bold mission statement uh, for what happens. Yeah, after it that. really is. And um, I think this is going to do it for our first uh, main feature. And uh, like, yeah. if you've got some opening tracks that you love, hit them. Hit us with it. We we want to know what what is it that you love. Absolutely. What what opening tracks puts your butt in the seat and just. Brings you in, makes you sit there and listen to a whole album. Uh, hit us up on social medias and on, in our email. Let us know. Um, we're going to move over now to uh, our album recommendations and track recommendations. So, uh, yeah, see you over there. So, uh, I'll kick this to you first, Brian. Uh, you're the one that initially named this the B-side. Yes. Uh, just because uh, we could use this uh, to highlight an album that maybe isn't getting enough attention and, and really deserves it. So uh, why don't you kick it off, man? Sure. So I have one pick for this episode. It is mm-hmm. uh, a very interesting album in that. Uh, um, and I think that this is going to be a topic we'll be discussing uh, on a subsequent episode, but like there are certain like summer albums and certain like winter albums. And um, in our part of the world, uh, it has gotten very cold very quickly. It's pretty much winter in the middle of November. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's an album I return to a lot. It is uh, by a group called Olive. It is an album called Extra Virgin. It is Trip Hop from 1997. And it is perfect for those like uh, late night walks uh, when it's freezing outside and you just you need something to soothe your mind. 
you gotta you gotta soothe the mind because if you don't you'll die cabin fever sets in really quick (laughs) exactly around this time of year and you really need music to kind of stave yourself off from all that craziness i know like there's always like winter tracks that i go for like maybe like um the avid brothers i am loving you and that kind of uh era of music for them and like uh some matt pond pa uh if i'm really feeling like uh you know i want to hit the snow days but like that is a great choice for this time of year what you got for us um so one album that i've been listening to a lot since it came out and it only came out on september 13th um but i've listened to it probably like 10 times uh it's an album called of unsound mind and it's by an artist called lydia liza uh she is a twin cities artist she's from uh i believe she's from saint paul and uh i've seen her collaborate on tracks before like she's done um some songs with um big cats one of the writers behind our theme song and uh she she became uh, she kind of went viral in uh, 2016 for uh, doing a rendition of Baby It's Cold Outside. Basically what John Legend and Kelly Clarkson are doing now. Right. She did it before them back in 2016. And she got some notoriety for that. But she's just an amazing songwriter. And... This album is like the perfect blend of singer songwriter, uh, and like there's a little bit of pop punk on this, and uh, the instrumentation just varies so much. You get some horns in there, you get some really atmospheric songs in there, but like her voice is what really sells it because it's it feels like. Uh, a lot of people have compared it to like sap running down a tree and just sticking to everything. That's a very singular kind of comparison. Right. But if I had to compare it to anything, I would say it's like, um, you know, those heavy snowflakes that are like really wet and they yes. stick to you. That's what I would describe. Okay. Like it's that kind of voice that just like it sticks with you in ways that you don't necessarily think. And like, this is an album about, you know, relationships and uh, finding your sobriety and um, just navigating your way through life. And it's a a fantastic album. Everybody should be listening to it. So, yeah, that's Of Unsound Mind by Lydia Seems like we picked two wintertime releases. You know, it's fitting. You know, it's it's December uh, when this uh, episode is coming out, so it's fitting. You need music for this time of year. Music's going to get you through. And you know what? The Coda podcast is going to get, get your, you through. Get your musical parka on. <laughs> Let it wrap itself around you. Grab and... your GT Snow Racer. Yep. <laughs> yep. And uh, go for a rip, bud. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, inaugural episode. Not too bad. Uh, we, we've got through it, Brian. We, we, we did her, bud. We did her. <laughs> and uh, we'll be sure to come back in two weeks, right, I hope? Yes. That's the plan. Yes, that is the plan. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. And as always, you can reach us over at thecodacast.gmail.com as well as uh, the Coda Podcast on Twitter. Yes. Reach out to us. 
tell us some of the opening tracks you love and some of the albums that you're listening to. Hit us with it. And, um, yeah, until next episode, make sure to keep those cans on. <laughs>